the auditorium here. Fill that out. Let us know a little bit about yourself. And, um, and certainly if you want to get in contact with us uh, as elders or pastors, we'd be happy to meet with you, talk with you, um, and uh, help you learn a little bit more about Orchard. Of course, those are also available for our members to let us know how we can pray for you. It is a privilege as a, an elder here at Orchard to be able to pray uh, for our flock. We're going to continue our teaching uh, this morning, our preaching, uh, from 1 Peter. In a moment, Lars is going to come up and share from us, share with us from 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 through 22. If you do not have a Bible, that is uh, underneath the seat in front of you. It's on page 1016. Um, while you look that up, I just want to draw a few announcements uh, to your attention from the bulletin. The first is um, Missions Connection meets this Tuesday evening. It's the second Tuesday of every month, meets this Tuesday evening from 7 to 8.30 p.m. right here in the, in the community room underneath uh, the auditorium. So if you've got a heart or you're interested in what we're doing in terms of global missions, this is a great place to meet and connect and pray for our missionaries. Um, also want to draw to your attention uh, Sunday nights at Orchard. Uh, we'll be meeting again this evening at uh, 630. Um, Rick will, Carmichael will be leading us through that um, on the disciplines of spiritual growth. And then lastly, uh, home groups. Um, if you are new to Orchard or if you've been at Orchard for a while and are kind of wanting to get involved in a home group, uh, we've got a little flyer at the welcome desk on it or you can come see me and I can kind of help you get plugged in there. All right. Let's get to the real meat then. If you're able to stand, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. And again, this is 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 through 22. This is the word of the Lord. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Please pray with me. Our Father, we... Uh Thank you for this gospel-saturated passage this morning. May you work in your mighty power of the Spirit to renew our minds and transform our lives for Jesus' sake. Amen. Please be seated. The late Bruce Shelley of Denver Seminary begins his book on church history with these words. Christianity is the only major religion to have as its central event the humiliation of its God. Today we will be considering the humiliation, the suffering, the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Shelley is right, the crucifixion of Christ is the central event of the Christian faith. And that image of him on the cross, a suffering God is not only unique among major religions, but to many people, it is foolishness. 
Paul says in 1 Corinthians, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. How is the suffering of Christ God's power? Why is it God's wisdom that Christ is crucified? Well, as we will consider this morning is precisely in that suffering, death, and resurrection of Jesus that salvation for humanity is found. As you reference, I invite you to reference your bulletin for an outline of today's message. Number one, the source of salvation, which is the death and resurrection of Christ, our substitute. Let's read verse 18 again. Please look in your own Bibles. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. It is remarkable that almost every word and phrase, really every word and phrase in this verse, is subject to heresy or a false gospel. Every possible aspect of gospel truth has been attacked. And that shouldn't surprise us from a spiritual warfare perspective because of how critical this is. If you get this truth wrong, you miss the gospel. You miss eternal life. You miss the good news of salvation. Let's consider these one by one. First of all, he died. Christ was put to death in the flesh. It said, he didn't go into a swoon He didn't go into semi-consciousness and then later revive. They were going to break his legs, but they saw he was already dead. They pierced his side. He physically died. He didn't switch places with Simon of Cyrene on the way to the cross, who was then accidentally crucified instead of him, a surprisingly popular belief, especially among Muslims. It is a critical scriptural truth to affirm the death of Christ. He told us to remember his death in the Lord's Supper. Second, he died for sins. Some manuscripts say suffer, some say died, but the meaning is identical. He suffered ultimately to the point of death. He suffered and died for sins. There was a profound purpose in the accomplishment of his death. He was not a martyr, not merely an innocent man who was punished unjustly. No. There is immense theological significance in his death. He died for sins. This phrase is used in the Greek Old Testament for the sacrifices of atonement in the Old Covenant. They would bring an animal that was slain as a sin offering. It was a picture of substitution. They would lay, he, was, he would lay his hand on the bull's head as a sign of transferring the guilt to the animal before it was slain for their sin. This was all a picture, a type, a shadow of what was to come in the new covenant. James Montgomery Boyce has brilliantly noted that these sacrifices of the old covenant were to the Jewish mind, analogous to the findings of the Russian psychologist 
Ivan Pavlov and his experimentation with the conditioned reflex. You, you probably are familiar with Pavlov's dogs. He would ring a bell each time before feeding them. So after enough time and repetition, this conditioned reflex was established. When the bell would ring, the dogs would start salivating for their food. God took millennia to condition his people to understand that he is holy and that sin means death. Time after time, animal after animal, in a graphic, bloody sacrifice, they were conditioned to understand that sin means death. I need a substitute. Sin means death. I need a substitute. Sin means death. I need a substitute. Over and over Again, so later when they would hear of the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, they would be salivating for their salvation. He was the fulfillment of everything they had learned and everything they had practiced throughout the history of their people. The the blood of the perfect substitute covering their sin once For all, Christ died in our place. This is the glorious gospel. Spurgeon said it this way. I've always considered with Luther and Calvin that the sum and substance of the gospel lies in that word substitution. Christ standing in the place of man. We do not inherently have the righteousness that God demands. Probably the predominant false teaching of our day, and really throughout history, is that we do have inherent righteousness. We are by nature good enough. We are holy enough to stand before God on our own merits. Well, we don't, and we're not. Christ, on the other hand, lived and embodied the righteousness of God. He never did anything that was not perfectly holy. He never said anything that was not perfectly holy. He never thought anything that was not perfectly holy. Yet he died for our sins. The righteous for the unrighteous. This is the great exchange on the cross. 2 Corinthians 5. He that is God made him that is Christ who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Our sin exchanged for his righteousness. Imagine an eternity in hell multiplied for countless people, reduced on one man for a finite period of time. The suffering of Christ for sin is unimaginable and well beyond our comprehension. But listen, God does not ask us to comprehend it, but to believe it. Cecil Alexander Sim says it well. We may not know, we cannot tell what pains he had to bear, but we believe it was for us he hung and suffered there. He suffered for our sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Third, notice he suffered once for sins. He's not still on the cross. 
The Jews sacrificed over a quarter of a million lambs in one Passover and repeated it year after year. Now Jesus, the new covenant, dies once. It is finished. He's not still making sacrifices. Incidentally, this, is, uh, this was the deciding factor in John Calvin's departure from the Roman Catholic Church during the Reformation because their official doctrine teaches there is a continual sacrificing of Christ because they view the body and blood of Christ as actually present in the Eucharist. He's constantly being sacrificed over and over again. Calvin could no longer participate in what he felt was a sacrilegious worship. That's why since the Reformation, Protestant churches with crosses display an empty cross instead of a crucifix because Jesus is no longer on the cross. He suffered once and it was completely sufficient for the sin of everyone who would ever believe. He suffered once and it was finished. Fourth, notice the purpose of his suffering. He suffered and died in order to bring us to God. This word that's translated bring us was used in a king's court. If you wanted an audience with the king, you would approach a certain person who would bring you to the king. That person would introduce you to the king, provide access to the king, bring you into relationship with the king. No one else can provide access to God. Only Jesus can bring you into relationship with God. Acts 4, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. 1 Timothy 2, for there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. No one else, not the Dalai Lama, not Muhammad, not the Pope, not Mary, not your parents, not your pastors. No one can bring you to God except Jesus Christ. Through the miracle of his cross, Christ bridges the impossible chasm between sinful men and a holy God. This reconciliation is incredibly complex, yet at the same time, Very simple. On one hand, the stacks of volumes at the world's greatest seminaries cannot plumb the depths of the atonement. On the other hand, it can be broken down to a simple picture that a child could draw of the cross as a bridge between man and God. This is the glorious gospel. Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. This is proven by his resurrection. He was made alive in the spirit, obviously contested by everyone. That's not a Christian. That's the source of our salvation. Number two in your outline. Now Peter gives us an illustration of salvation, Noah's Ark. At the end of verse 18, Christ was, read with me, made alive in the spirit, verse 19, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Now before we talk about Noah's Ark in verse 20, 
We need to make some sense of this very difficult verse 19. What is Peter talking about here with the spirits in prison? Now, this is some of the most difficult Greek in the New Testament to translate and then to interpret. Very good. Thanks, brother. I don't think it's redeemable, though. Just set it down. um, I'm not thirsty. I just got a little issue. Um, Very good conservative scholars disagree on the details. I don't want to spend a ton of time on this because it's not central and critical to the overall passage. Nevertheless, we want to be good Bible students, so I don't want to just skip over it. So you'll notice in verse 19, the word proclaimed. There's a proclaiming or proclamation taking place. So in order to interpret this verse, we need to answer the following questions. Number one, to whom is this proclamation directed? It says these are spirits in prison who disobeyed during the days of Noah. Are they spirits of people? Are they fallen angels? Second question, when is this proclamation taking place? Is it during the days of Noah or is it sometime after Jesus' death? And finally, what is the content of the proclamation? What's being proclaimed? That's going to depend on the first two questions. Now, one, one view that we can rule out completely is this is not Jesus proclaiming the gospel to people after they've died. This is not some kind of second chance for salvation after you die or some kind of purgatory. That would contradict manifold passages in the Bible. So that's not an option. But there are a couple of reasonable options I'll mention. The predominant view among evangelical scholars, probably, is that this is Jesus proclaiming victory over fallen angels because of his work on the cross. This proclamation is happening after his death, either before his resurrection, when according to one flavor of the view, he descended to the realm of the dead, or more likely after his resurrection during his ascension. We see later, in verse 22, you'll notice that Powers, demonic powers, all authority has been subjected to him, hence a victory proclamation. Now, this view relies on an interpretation. I want to get too detailed, but I have to say a little. An interpretation of Genesis 6, where we read about Noah, and you'll remember that passage maybe that says the sons of God, and this view would hold that these are fallen angels that inhabited human bodies and committed gross sin. These spirits have been reserved for judgment, and now Jesus proclaims victory over them in their condemnation. A modification of this view is that these are spirits of people who disobeyed during Noah's day and died in the flood. Either way, it is a victory proclamation from Jesus in the spiritual realm. Again, probably the most popular view. A second view, advocated by Wayne Grudem and others, is that Christ is proclaiming in the Spirit through Noah during Noah's day. Now, this might seem like a stretch at first, but if you look back to chapter 1, Peter's already spoken this way about the Old Testament prophets. He says in chapter 1, verse 10, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time that the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and subsequent glories. So the Spirit of Christ was predicting future events through the Old Testament prophets. In the same way, this view argues, 
The Spirit of Christ was proclaiming through Noah to people during Noah's day. And the spirits of these people are now in prison. Some of your translations might even say the spirits now in prison. That's not in the Greek, but they're just, they're taking this view of the, of the passage, the interpretation. So the spirit of Christ through Noah proclaiming righteousness and repentance to people before the flood. They didn't listen and their spirits and souls or souls are now in hell. Now, unfortunately, that's all I'm going to be able to do. Time does not permit to go to the background required and the pros and cons of these arguments, but I'm happy to discuss with anyone if you have questions afterward. In case you're wondering, I personally have gone back and forth over the years, but the view that Jesus is proclaiming victory over fallen angels for a number of reasons I think is the most persuasive. Now, I know some of you well enough to know that you love more detail on this. (laughs) But I know others of you already feel like you're in prison because of how much detail I've already given. So we must move on. Let's consider briefly Noah's Ark as an illustration of salvation. Peter ends verse 20 by saying that eight persons, Noah and his family, were brought safely through the water in the ark. The water was the judgment. The ark was their salvation. This is an historical analogy or type of our salvation in Christ. Because of sin, you remember Genesis 6, God sent a flood of judgment. But Noah and his family were brought safely through the judgment because they were safe and secure in the ark. Analogous to that, when we repent and put our trust in Christ and are genuinely converted, we are in Christ. We enter into the ark that is Christ, if you will. We go through the judgment safe and secure in Christ as we participate with him in his death and resurrection. Now, before moving on, let me just say a brief word as it relates to the overall purpose of this great letter, 1 Peter, which I hope you've been encouraged by. I certainly have. Remember, a main theme of this letter is to suffering Christians that the followers of Jesus are elect exiles. We're the minority Okay, foreigners, we belong in a kingdom elsewhere. And narrow is the path that leads to life, and few shall find it. Consider eight persons were saved out of likely millions of people. If you're discouraged that you seem to be the only believer in your family or at your job or your neighborhood or at your school, you can feel alone. I understand that. Consider, though, eight people in the world. I want you to take heart here, believer. The Lord is with you, just like he was with those eight in the ark, the few. And he will bring you through safely to himself. So take courage. Third, let's consider the symbol of salvation and the means of salvation, which are two very different things. Peter says that baptism corresponds to this situation with Noah's Ark. The word baptism means immersion, immersed into something. Noah's family left the old world, immersed themselves in the ark, went through the waters of judgment, came out the other side untouched by the judgment. And as we said, this whole thing is an illustration of our salvation. If you have immersed yourself into Christ by faith, you are in Christ. You've gone through the judgment in the death of Christ. 
and came out the other side in the resurrection untouched by the judgment. That is salvation. So lest we misunderstand, the act of water baptism is not the means of salvation. This whole thing, Peter wants us to make absolutely certain that we do not confuse the symbol of salvation with the means of salvation. So he says, what saves us is not the removal of dirt from the body. The actual mechanics of going into the water and baptism don't save anyone. Rather, salvation comes, he says, through, this is the means, an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So the means to be saved does not come through the water, but by our personal appeal to God for a good conscience through the source of salvation, the death and resurrection of Christ. Now, what does this mean? Appealing to God for a good conscience. Well, sinful people have a dirty conscience. When you come to Christ, you come with repentance, sickened by your sin. You come to God with the burden of sin on your conscience. Sin and its guilt are oppressive, and you want to be set free. We need to have our sins forgiven in order to have this kind of intimacy with God. I've told this before, but John Stott tells of a conversation. John Stott tells of a conversation he had with the director of a large mental hospital in England. And this man said with his years of experience dealing with those struggling with with severe mental trauma and anxiety, said this, I could dismiss half my patients tomorrow if they could be assured of forgiveness. Repentant sinners want to be forgiven by God. It's oppressive what sin does. They want the burden of their sin gone like we celebrated in the Lord's Supper this morning. This is the good news of the gospel, that you can have your sins forgiven through Jesus Christ. Your conscience can be cleansed. Another meaning of the word baptism, by the way. Hebrews 9. How much more will the blood of Christ, through who, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Later in chapter 10, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean, cleansed from an evil conscience. Peter says the means of salvation is your personal appeal to God for the forgiveness of your sins through the death of Christ and his resurrection. This is what it means when we talk about trusting in Christ, putting your faith in Christ for salvation. It's not your immersion into the water that saves you. It's your immersion into Christ by faith that saves you. Now, just because baptism, water baptism, is not the means of salvation doesn't mean it's not important because it is. Jesus commands it of believers. It's a beautiful symbol, a picture of what did save you, entering into the death and resurrection of Christ. When you go into and out of the water, it symbolizes what happened when you were saved, dying with Christ, buried with Christ, resurrected with Christ. Again, you've gone through the judgment in Christ, and you've been set free. It's also obviously a great opportunity for the believer to proclaim this publicly, We were blessed, weren't we, a a few weeks ago here at Orchard to have a water baptism. Two members of our church family did this very thing. 
They talked to us about how they had entered into Christ, how they'd put their faith in Christ, trusted in him, and received that forgiveness and new life. And they were then immersed in the water as Jesus commanded, illustrating what happened to them in salvation. It was a powerful morning. Water baptisms in our churches, it's such an important time for our church. We remember the gospel. We rejoice with these believers but also to keep them accountable now as their brothers and sisters to this allegiance they have made to Christ. So if you're a believer and you've not been water baptized, we encourage you to take this step of obedience to Christ. Please talk to me or any of the pastors, if you, even if you just have questions about this. Now I want to take some time on a subject that seems to generate a lot of questions. And that is the baptism of young children. Godly parents have very good questions. Many of you have these questions and just want to do the right thing. And I want to help you. So let me just say first that it is a beautiful thing when you hear your child profess their belief in Christ in some way. At first... Your child may say something that doesn't even resemble an understanding of the gospel, like they love Jesus or Jesus is in their heart or something like that, and that is fantastic. Okay, we never want to question that or cause them to doubt that. We want to share in their excitement, keep encouraging them as they develop, continue to disciple them, basically. As they mature, prayerfully, they will better understand the nature of sin their own conscience, their need for forgiveness, the sacrifice of Christ, the uniqueness of Christ. And with even more maturity, begin to understand the cost of discipleship, that there are hard choices to make in life if you want to follow Jesus and what their allegiance to Christ actually means for them. And we as parents always want to reinforce the faith that they're expressing, and continue to give them biblical counsel, praying for them, discipling them along the way. Now, when should they be water baptized? Well, the scripture is clear, we believe, that baptism is for genuine believers. And with a child, this is admittedly difficult to discern. The scripture doesn't tell us an exact age, But we believe there are sound biblical principles and wisdom, which I'll talk about, in waiting until they're older, just as a general rule. We see here in verse 21 that salvation comes to us through an appeal to God for a good conscience, based on the understanding of how the death and resurrection of Christ relates to the forgiveness of one's sins personally, which we just talked about. This obviously requires an understanding of God's holiness, the conscience, the guilt of sin, the gospel of Christ's victory over sin and death and his cross. So at a minimum, they need to have an understanding of these things, but also, and this is very important, this is not just passing a quiz about the facts of the gospel. Saving faith is an appeal to God for their own conscience and their own sin. Obviously, something very personal, And the obedience to Christ to be baptized after this experience, by definition, should also be driven by personal conviction, not something driven by the parents. By and large, kids want to please their parents. Now, we as parents have the biblical responsibility to teach our children the gospel, instruct them in the word, teach them about Christ. However, 
the idea that you as a parent are on the hook to get your child baptized is just not a biblical idea. In fact, there's a lot more to lose from that misconception and urgency than gained. Let me just give you a few reasons. First of all, a spoken or unspoken urgency from parents might implicitly be interpreted by the child that this water baptism is a whole lot more than a symbol. Clearly, this is important to mom and dad. Maybe this has something to do with my salvation or my assurance, neither of which are true. And it may give them a false sense of assurance. Secondly, and this is tragic, but it happens more often than we'd like, when children grow older and gain some independence and the gates come down, as they say, some kids tragically abandon Christ and reveal it was not really their faith on display at the baptism, but actually the faith of their parents. And so it turns out we as a church symbolize the false conversion with a baptism, and that's confusing to everyone involved and something that the pastors have some accountability for. Here's another way to maybe think about waiting. The idea of following Jesus only makes sense if you understand what it means to not follow him. And this requires some individual choices being made outside the bubble of direct parental authority, demonstrating that despite the lure of the world, they choose Christ. Now, a huge blessing of a child raised in a godly family is that child is heavily influenced, praise God, by the godly environment at home. But also because of that powerful environment, we need to be cautious about how permanent these decisions are that the child is making. And again, we want to encourage them, continue to disciple them as they grow toward independence. But thirdly, even for kids that do go on for the Lord, an early childhood baptism can actually be a disservice to them. Let me explain what I mean by that. Many times we've had this experience over the years as pastors, young men and women, usually in their early 20s, coming back to us wanting to be baptized again because they were too young to really understand what they were doing or have any maturity to know what they were doing. And in hindsight, the public confession they made at their baptism was actually something more driven by the parents or a desire to please their parents more than any kind of personal conviction toward the Lord. And they can feel somewhat robbed, frankly, from an experience they would prefer to have been more personal between them and God, something they now have. That's what this should be about, symbolic of their own understanding of the gospel and its personal application, a wrestling with the cost of discipleship resulting in a real ownership of their faith and the desire to publicly express for the church to see and to keep them accountable. Instead, they can look back at something that might have been more for their parents' belief than theirs. Now, just to be very clear, Waiting until they're older or even encouraging a child to wait is not questioning their salvation or the genuineness of their profession. That's not what I'm saying. Again, we should always encourage what we see and hear for them, from them, continue to disciple them. But what it, might, what it does mean, however, at least a couple of things. One, it's that you're jealous for your child, this, that this symbol of their faith and their act of obedience to their Lord be their symbol and not just yours. And that it be meaningful for them personally in the long run and not just you. 
Secondly, waiting means maintaining sole spiritual oversight of your child. And this is what I mean. You may have confidence within your family of your child's conversion, and that's great. Encourage, develop that. But the discipline of your child is still within your family. A water baptism changes that. It raises the child's conversion to the awareness of the entire church. So now we as a church in general and pastors in particular are in the position of looking for a credible conversion of the child. And if they are baptized, need to take their profession seriously as their lives now become accountable to the church, not just their parents. And we think there's good wisdom in waiting on that transition. Now, we realize all kids are different. There's no formula here. We need to use good judgment in these things as parents and as pastors on a case-by-case basis. But I'm hopeful and prayerful because I know we get a lot of questions on this and they're good questions. I'm hopeful these principles will help in your conversations with your family and also help you understand where the pastors are coming from in these things. And I'd be happy to discuss, again, any questions you might have. But the big picture here is that our goal as pastors is to help you spiritually lead your family. That's what we're about. So back to our outline. Water baptism is the corresponding symbol of this salvation that is rooted in the source of salvation, the substitutionary death and resurrection of Jesus, from which we benefit personally by the means of salvation, trusting in him for the forgiveness of our sins. Now let's consider the final point in your outline, the victory of salvation, number four. All authority given to our resurrected and ascended Savior, Jesus Christ. Verse 22, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Excuse me. The story does not end at the cross, does it? After his triumph on the cross, which was displayed and vindicated in his resurrection, all authority was given to him, and he ascended into heaven where he sits at the right hand of God, which is described in Scripture as the place of majesty, prominence, honor, authority, and power. Hebrews 1, after making purifications for sins, his death and resurrection, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Angels, authorities, and powers were subjected to him. There was a victory on the cross of cosmic proportions. Hebrews 2, through his death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. The death of Christ is powerful. My friends, it destroys sin and death. It nullifies the enemy's power. It silences the accuser. There, is, there are no accusations remaining. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You've been set free. Notice also what this means for our suffering now. Consider his example Okay, there's, a, there's an aspect, the main aspect here is how he, his suffering is not like ours. But notice that it says, um, let's see here. Sorry. For Christ. So as we, as we think about our suffering, it says, 
is better for suffer for doing good than, it, than if it's God's will than for doing evil. For, for Christ also suffered. So there's an there's a example element here too. Consider his example. At the time when things were the worst for Jesus, consider the time when he was treated most unfairly. The time when his suffering was at its peak. That was the time of his greatest triumph. It is finished. Jesus was exactly where God wanted him to be. He triumphed in his suffering. Brothers and sisters, it may be at the time where things are the worst for you, when you are treated the most unfairly, when your suffering is at its peak, that may be the time of your greatest triumph, when God is most glorified in you. Romans eight seventeen. we are fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Christ went from suffering to glory. And if you're in Christ, so shall you. This is what Peter wants us to see. In your suffering, remember, Jesus is on the throne. The whole arc of history is moving in this direction of his kingdom forever. It's so easy to forget that, isn't it? As we drudge through this life with its toils and tribulations, the world is so dismissive and derisive of what we're talking about. But remember, the victory on the cross is not some kind of localized phenomenon that's affected a few people here and there throughout history. No, it is the central event in the history of the cosmos. Don't be duped by what the world says. What the world says and thinks are key events. As Sam Elbury said, the news feed in heaven is very different than the news feed on earth. One day the cosmic victory will be consummated in the entire creation, natural and supernatural. As we speak, all opposition, all spiritual forces of evil are on the clock. Ultimately, they will come under the direct rule and final judgment of Christ in his kingdom. And even now, this kingdom has been inaugurated as he sits at the right hand of God. Suffering Christian, take heart. You are a child of the king, and he will reign forever. Let me close this morning where I started. The uniqueness, the absolute uniqueness of this God that we serve. This is truly the only major religion to have as its central event the humiliation of its God. You may have heard this before, but listen to this profound excerpt from John Stott in his book, The Cross of Christ. He says this, I could not myself believe in God if it were not for the cross. The only God I believe in is the one Nietzsche ridiculed as God on the cross. In the real world of pain, how could one worship a God who was immune to it? I have entered many Buddhist temples in different Asian countries and stood respectfully before the statue of the Buddha, his legs crossed, arms folded, eyes closed, the ghost of a smile playing around his mouth, a remote look of his face, detached from the agonies of the world. But each time after a while, each time after a while I've had to turn away. And in my imagination I've turned instead to that lonely 
twisted, tortured figure on the cross. Nails through hands and feet, back lacerated, limbs wrenched, brow bleeding from thorn pricks, mouth dry and intolerably thirsty, plunged in God-forsaken darkness. That is the God for me. He He laid aside his immunity to pain. He entered our world of flesh, blood, tears, and death. He suffered for us, end quote. Think about this, my friends. Frederick Nietzsche and the intellectual atheists say this is foolishness. God on the cross? Of all the ideas of God, this is certainly the most absurd. Stott says no way. Do you see the pain in this world? Are you blind, Nietzsche? Do you not see the suffering going on? The God of the cross is the only God that makes sense to me. My friends, this world is so desperately fallen. It is a world of sin, a world of much pain and suffering. In fact, you may be suffering right now. You may be on the verge of tears right now because of things going on in your life. Please listen carefully. There's only one God, and he loves you. And he's not immune to your suffering. He didn't sit back with his arms crossed, apathetic and unmoved by your pain. He suffered in a way you cannot possibly comprehend. He died for sin. And he died for sinners like you and like me. This cross, far from being foolish, his very power and wisdom are on display. It is the very source of, of salvation because he was triumphant over sin and death and he can give you that eternal life his life now and one day life with him forever the life you were created to have no more sin no more tears no more suffering only glory But you must turn to him in faith. That's the means of salvation. Appeal to God to have the guilt of your sins removed. And Jesus will bring you to God. That's his promise. Will you come to know this power and wisdom of the cross this morning? I close with these great words from Spurgeon. The winds of hell hath blown. The world its hate hath shown. Yet it is not overthrown. Hallelujah for the cross. It shall never suffer loss. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Please stand with me as we close this morning. Our Father, we thank you for the power and wisdom of the cross. I pray for those here this morning who do not have this relationship with you. May Jesus bring them to you. May they confess their sins and repent and accept this free gift of eternal life and join his kingdom forever. We pray for Jesus' sake. Amen.